Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hello. Hey, Jonathan. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Now, tell me where you're at in your uh, studies. Well, I'm currently not studying uh, biblical studies or theology right now. Um, I work in Indianapolis Public Schools in the central office, um, so sort of at the district level there. So um, in terms of studying, it's mostly just kind of uh, whenever I can at the point at this point. But I um, see. I see. Yeah. But you did did you go through a program at Duke then? I or? did, yes. I did my master's at Duke. And so that's where I got linked up with Doug. Okay. Uh took way too many classes with him. <laughs> yeah. And uh yeah, we, we became pretty quick friends and remain very close. Uh yeah, today, yeah. So, he, yeah. He just seems like a lovely person. I've done a he's couple the best. Of, he yeah, really he's, is. He's very generous. I've done Mm-hmm. two podcasts with him and uh yeah 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 i've listened to them uh yeah he's quite quite uh, impressive and done some very distinct work yeah uh i can't claim i can't get one of his certificates <laughs> i haven't made my way through the whole thing not yet. quite okay no. yeah maybe um, one day it yeah. is a lot i think you almost and I'm saying this about myself to to hear the theory it sounds on the surface and I made the mistake I read a book review mm. and I think the guy just got it wrong I think he and and it kind of I thought oh well if that's what it is you know mm. and and then this year I sat down and read it through I said oh well this is you know this is so compelling and of course I was already the theology I was already I was already there. Yeah. And I had used his you know we've used his, uh, his stuff. I I did a Romans class several years back and used mm-hmm. I didn't use his as a primary text but I was using but this class I'm using deliverance and obviously just portions of it. Sure. But what you know the students may not get is the compelling nature of the argument when you when you just sit down and you you start going through the logic of it yeah yeah absolutely it's a paradigm shift i think for a lot of people especially because all of our theology even if we're sort of already trying to kind of move away from a kind of destructive contractual account of the gospel so much of our theology is based on what is going on in Romans 1 to 3, some of the other justification texts as well. And so it's kind of like a, it's just hard to let go of that stuff. Even if we're we're not really consciously, you know, holding on to it, I think it, it really has been so, I mean, it's in the water, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, that's hard. And I acknowledge that, that, that it's hard to kind of, to to move away from that um in a way that allows you to see things in in a different way and i I get that that's a long process no one's going to be convinced 
yeah. play this it's, stuff immediately. It's just it, not going to happen. It's it's yeah. going to be a long, a long process. So yeah. so I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Jeff. This is Do Jonathan Depew. Tell tell John about yourself. I uh, am a fan of your podcasts. I listened to oh, a few of them. Awesome. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Okay. So and um and just yeah enjoy being part of paul's stuff that paul's doing and i have a phd in english awesome um, but not in theology so i've really loved learning from from all of you folks well it's great to meet you man nice to meet you too yeah yeah matt we're uh tell tell john about yourself a little bit hi matt sure good to meet you hey how you doing I'm good, nice good. to meet you too glad mm -hmm. to have you join us I am a Methodist and a lawyer in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Ah, gotcha. Very nice. I lived in Roanoke for a bit. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're we're up in Harrisonburg, um, sure. a couple hours north of there. Very nice. Well, good to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Hey, John. Good to have you. My name Hi, is Brian. Brian. I've first of all, I just moved here from Chapel Hill, so I understand you're in Durham. Uh, not anymore, but I was. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> for a long time. You yeah. were there, and I was there for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I'm now in Charlotte, or Concord. Okay. Concord. Anyway, I am a hospice chaplain. Mm -hmm. I have been taking courses from forging plowshares for, I guess, about six classes now, going on two years. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Jeff, Jonathan is John is going to address the question that you raised about uh, the precedent for the teacher. Yes. So the first part of the question, I think, was about uh, how do Christians interpret Romans one ish before justification theory took over post Luther. So I took that as sort of part one of the question. Um, so I want to address that first. The second part in terms of precedent for this reading is going to take me a little bit of time. So we're, I'm going to walk through this, if that's okay, for a while, and then we can kind of move on. But as far as the how did Christians interpret Romans 1 before kind of this post-Reformation kind of stuff that happened, you know, of course, we have many Christian thinkers over the course of the centuries prior to <laughs> the Reformation. So there's going to be a, a wide variety of kind of ways of dealing with this stuff. We do have some kind of Catholic antecedents to this kind of justification theory thing. It's not just that it just suddenly pops out of the blue post-Reformation or anything like that. But... What's interesting to me is when you look at how the early fathers read Romans 1 to 3, especially Romans 1, they're not really activating the theory. Um, even if they're not reading it as a Socratic or kind of speech and character text. Okay. So I'll I'll give you an example of this. So Origen, Origen of Alexandria, his way of going about this is he he doesn't actually construe Romans 118 to 32 as a universal indictment of humanity who all kind of try to follow God's law or God's instructions and then sort of fail miserably and self-evidently, which is the basic claim of justification theory. Okay. What Origen does is he actually targets a specific group of people 
as the locus of God's wrath, which is those who consciously and knowingly suppress the truth about God and then sort of carry on their own way. So he sees other people as being able to apprehend the truth about God and they actually follow God. He kind of leaves room, room for that, which is not what justification theory does at its basis. Okay. So he's, he has a specific target. Okay. Um, the people who are his target are the people he talks about in his Romans commentary, specifically as the wise men of this world. So he's using this sort of pejoratively. <laughs> um, it's these people for him who are the ones that are the, the target of Romans 1, 18 to 32. So you can tell he's kind of, he's not even really getting on board with what's going on at the basis of the, the theory. So it kind of already screws up the theory at the beginning that because the theory is trying to shut down everybody and especially Jews, right? And make them realize that they need to um, get out of this situation and accept Jesus to escape this kind of coming wrath from God or retribution, really. I'm fine with wrath. I'm not okay with retribution specifically. Um, and of course, Origen and many other of the early fathers are universalists, right? So thinking Gregory of Nyssa, Theodore of Matsuesta. Um, so they're not going to commit to the sort of radical, ex really exclusivity of justification theory, right? So th that's already going to kind of cause problems with the theory if that's where they're going eschatologically. Because um, that's it the sort of exclusivity is inherent in justification theory because you need an other. You need an other situation to sort of flip out of into this new kind of situation as we talk about it from box A to box B. <laughs> you need to flip out of box A, which doesn't work for you, into box B. Um, for someone like Origen and for someone like Gregory, it's it, that that stuff is not even in play. So you don't really see that in the early fathers. They're not reading this text in terms of justification theory at all. That's not to say that they read it in terms of the Socratic or speech and character thing, because they, they don't, right? But that's a separate question, right? So now, moving to the sort of second part of this, do we have precedent for reading Romans 1-3 as a kind of Socratic maneuver? on Paul's part to kind of shut down this rival missionary or teacher, right? So that's the that's the big question here. Do we actually have precedent to do this? I think we do. <laughs> I think we have a lot of it. And I'm going to try to walk through this as best I can um, in the short amount of time we have. So my friend, I don't know if you know him, Jeff, Andrew Rolera, he's at the King's University right now, actually. Um, he's done extensive primary source work on just this thing, on speech and character stuff, more than anyone today. So Andrew Lara is kind of a key figure here. Um, he'll go to the ancient texts, and we're going to go there eventually. But first, I kind of want to set some context here in Paul specifically. Scholars generally agree that Paul does this sort of speech and character kind of rhetorical thing in first corinthians all over the place he will quote from the corinthians or a potential sort of position 
that the Corinthians, the Corinthians may be actually influenced by. And scholars will often call this a Corinthian slogan. Corinthian slogan is kind of the key uh, phrase there. And what's interesting about these Corinthian slogans that show up throughout 1 Corinthians is that they're not introduced by what Rulera calls verbs of saying. So, for example, and then someone says, or and then I say, or then I respond, right? So those would be sort of verbs of saying, right? It's an explicit way of saying, and then I say, or and then, then someone else says, right? Those verbs don't occur in these places, but scholars are still able to recognize that something's a bit off here. There's too much contradic contradiction going on in a given text or given pericope, right? Where the, the, the best way to kind of respond to this is to basically postulate, well, what if Paul is quoting the very thing he's going to object to here? So this is just setting the context within Paul. Okay. A lot of people recognize this happens in 1 Corinthians. This is already an established thing right off the bat. But most scholars don't do the primary source of research as to why this is actually the case. It's actually kind of intuitive. When you come across something that seems like a contradiction in a stretch of text, you're going to be like, okay, something else is going on here. I can't just be like, this is just Paul all the way through, right? I think this is pretty common across cultures too. For our own kind of culture in the United States or in Canada, we see stand-up comics doing this same sort of thing all the time. <laughs> They're often going to change the inflection of their voice and they're going to indicate through that inflection that they're talking in a different voice. And this is sort of expected with epistles, okay? Which were basically like written speeches. We forget this because we read the Bible most of the time. We hear it out loud in church, but it's not performed in church usually. It's just read with a certain kind of monotone voice, right? But epistles were meant to be performed. They're meant to be acted out in a certain way. So performance was expected with epistles. And so Paul is writing epistles, okay? And we have figures like Pliny, we have figures like Cicero, um, talking about how they would sort of make revisions and do sort of practice runs of how they would perform this or instruct their letter bearers to perform a certain text. Okay, so uh, a scholar who's great on this is Peter Head. Um, Peter Head does great work on how epistles are supposed to be performed. Okay, and whether the letter carrier, him or herself, especially her, um, in Paul's case, because I think Phoebe was a letter carrier, whether or not they're the ones reading it, they're definitely tasked with instructions about how to clarify whomever is reading this epistle and how to express this kind of communication event to people. Um, so th there's a lot of stuff going on here, and it's most of it's going to be audible and visible to an audience which is really interesting and kind of counterintuitive for us modern people, okay? 
it's a lot of this is going to be through kind of vocal inflection. A lot of it's going to be through intonation, even physical acting as well. It's really fascinating. We don't read texts like this anymore. We pick up a text and read it, okay? Especially the Bible. Now, what's important is that this stuff, this way of performing a text, is learned from the elementary age of people in the ancient world. So we get this in early curriculum, like the Progomnesmata. Um, and that goes all the way up to sort of college level rhetorical handbooks. So it's you learn this from an early age, you're trained in this all the way through up to what we would now call a kind of college level. People learn how to use these skills in their speeches and also to recognize how these things are, are, are supposed to be understood in their reading as well and in their understanding. And like I said, what's hard for us to realize is just how public an activity reading was in the ancient world. We don't read publicly in that way anymore. So in order to read before an audience, in the ancient world, you actually have to learn how to inflect and perform. Okay. So that's one of the first things I would say. Uh, do you want me to pause here? I've got a lot more to say. Is it, Just does it make sense so far? Okay. The question, I have a question yeah, yeah. about that. Uh, do you know anything about whether, like, I heard that, like, St. Augustine mm -hmm. would, have, and it's clear he did, would read out loud just while he's all by himself. Nobody really does that anymore. We all read with an inner monologue. Right. You know, if it was more common in this way of like teaching kids from a young age, if their kids were more like, and people were more used to reading things out loud in groups than they were by themselves. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that's totally the case. Um, especially with, I mean, so we're talking about an, an epistle. So it's basically a letter, but it's essentially... Peter Head's work shows that um, epistles are essentially speeches that are expected to be read out loud, right? Now, you, you need to remember, too, with Augustine and the text of the Bible, Augustine didn't read Greek. He's notorious for not being able to read Greek. Um, so he, he, he doesn't have the same sort of uh, understanding of what's going on. It's cool that he read it out loud, but that, that's a very big step into the western tradition but yeah i'm i'm glad to hear that he read out loud <laughs> but yeah just so everyone knows augustine did not read greek and that may have been part of the fault of some of his errors later on with certain yeah. readings of texts but we're doing romans 5 next week yeah obviously. yeah that's a big one <laughs> <laughs> that is a big one for sure but let me uh, uh push it a little further sure did people read silently do we have evidence that people did read silently in the first century uh i don't know i don't know about the it depends on what they're reading right so the, the tech they wouldn't have private Copies. like bibles or anything right so they, they would be dependent on someone reading this to them like we, we come at this with the expectation that we have books <laughs> we have they didn't have books at this point mm -hmm. <laughs> really no they didn't have their own private bibles so it would be dependent upon somebody um reading this to them and mm -hmm. they would 
And this would happen over and over and over again. This is not just a one-time event. This is a regular event. Um, and they were trained to hear text this way, right? Now, in terms of reading privately, yeah, I, I'm sure there were certain things that they, they could read privately. But in terms of the the uh, letters, like let's say you're a someone in Galatia, you're a part of that that community. You wouldn't have a copy of <laughs> Paul's letter to the Galatians, right? You would be dependent upon the letter bearer or somebody who has been set up to read that to you in a kind of communal setting to read it to you over and over again, right? Um, so that that's that's the distinction there, I think. What I'm really trying to say here is that even without the primary source information that we're going to get into a bit more, I, I mentioned the sort of um, rhetorical handbooks and that sort of stuff, which is, it, it's important. Even without that, scholars will, like, there's an intuitive sense from a lot of scholars, especially um, within the Pauline data, except for Romans 1 for some reason, intuitively encounter contradictions in text and go, okay, what I'm encountering is not something wildly inconsistent or someone who's just a dumb speaker or something like that, right? What I'm encountering is two sides of a debate. There is some there is some sort of conversation happening here. And that's what happens in 1 Corinthians a lot of the time. A good example of this is, I don't know, have you all heard of Lucy Pepiat? She's a biblical scholar, um, does a lot of a lot of work in 1 Corinthians, yeah, Jeff. And she's kind of applying some of what Douglas is doing to 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 in particular. Uh, she doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of the ancient material that I'm going to try and walk through a bit. What I want to say is that if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 11, what is that? That's the head coverings passage, right? Okay. So Pepiot argues, in her argument, is that people advocating for head coverings are the Corinthians. And that's the very thing that Paul is rejecting in that text okay so if you're interested in this kind of argumentation i would recommend her book women in worship in corinth um or at, at corinth the reason i bring this up is because her book has landed really well with most scholars who are convinced of her scripting okay not just in this book but in a lot of her other work as well why does this matter to me in her book in her work, there are no verbs of saying. There are no, you say this, but I say this. There are other signals that are actually quite overt to suggest a kind of conversation going on, okay? So the way Pepiat sort of scripts things in 1 Corinthians 11 is we have two transitions going on in the text, two gar transitions. So gar just meaning something like four in in greek from what the corinthians are saying to what paul is saying back to them and a lot of people agree with this okay um i wouldn't want to lean my hat to uh or kind of depend too much on just a single term but a lot of people really agree with this and see a shift in the rhetoric that's going on there okay now what happens is 
like I said, many scholars are pretty cool with what Pepia does here in her scripting. And Paul's kind of use of gar, so for, as a way of sort of indicating that kind of transition or those transitions from somebody else to somebody else. But get really upset <laughs> when someone like Douglas or Rolera or me insists that something like this is happening in Romans. Okay? And I can talk about this for hours and hours and hours about why I think this is the case. Um, I, I kind of indicated this to, to Paul before we actually kind of started, but um, yeah, I could talk about that for a long time. It has nothing to do with exegesis. It has nothing to do with historical reconstruction, but um, let's go to Romans and kind of see how this works out. So Romans 18 has a guard transition. We had the four. Okay. Just like people have identified in 1 Corinthians 11. Okay. But I think we have even stronger reasons to indicate that there is a speech and character happening here beyond the gar. Because the gar is going to be ambivalent unless you have something solid. Okay. Can you read Romans 2 1 and just the first couple of verses? Yeah, Romans 2 1 and following. New American Standard. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Awesome. Perfect. Um, can you reread just the first verse? So just 2-1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Yeah, perfect. Cool. Yeah, well, so... Into one. So you read O Man. Where does O Man show up in your translation? Uh three. Yeah, so O Man also shows up into one, <laughs> which is hilarious. I mean, people kind of fumble over this. Um translations kind of fumble over this. So it should mm -hmm. be something like, therefore, you, O Man, have no excuse. Okay. When yeah. you judge others, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So two one in rhetorical terms is what's known as an apostrophe. It's a kind of turn away uh, from something and a turn to address something else, okay? So Paul's addressing somebody here in 2-1. You old man, okay? This is really important. <laughs> He's identifying someone and characterizing them in a certain way. He's addressing someone, he's characterizing them as what? A judger. Not just in general, but a judger of people who do specific things. So we have an address, we have a characterization, and right at the beginning of the sentence we get dia, which just means therefore, as I think was in that translation, um, or something like for this reason. Right. So that's our data so far in Paul. 
Now we need to step back a little bit. So let me get into some of the ancient sources as well. <laughs> this is going to help us understand what's going on here. If we step back and look at ancient sources, like the Rhetorica ad Herenium, if we look at Quintilian, if we look at these sort of like even earlier uh, kind of elementary school curriculum by Theon, if we look at pseudo-Hermogenes, these span centuries before and after Paul and during Paul's time. There's a convention of rhetorical uses of text, like speech and character, all the way through. This is shot all the way through Paul's context. This is shot all the way through it. Before, during, after. Okay? So the convention of rhetorical uses, like speech and character, are very, very consistent during this time. I want us to, to really hear that. Very consistent. And it's very stable in the Greco-Roman world. Very stable. So according to the broad range of historical material that we have, here's what needs to happen for a student or someone learning to write in order to signal that a speech and character is happening. Okay? Here's what you need. Another speaker needs to be identified, number one. Another speaker needs to be characterized as something like a hero, a philosopher, or as a judger, for example. And all the attributed speech to another person needs to be appropriate to their character. So we have this sort of criteria of appropriateness, okay? It needs to be appropriate to what's been said. Now, the reason this convention happens is because there's no formal arrangement in this literature of, like I was saying, verbs of saying. To introduce people, you don't have, and now someone says this, now someone says that. This can happen, but it's not the norm in this literature. It's not. We have plenty of examples of this from Epictetus, from Philo, Josephus, all sorts of verbless transitions, and then how to discern who is speaking and when, okay? This is quite fascinating stuff. A good kind of classical example of this, this is prior to Paul, um, were the grammarians. So these were basically ancient Greek philo philologists, uh, textual commentators, basically textual scholars, who were commenting on Homer's works which, uh, like I said, predate Paul. Uh, these comments are called scolios. So they're home Homeric kind of scolia that were collected. Uh, you have these manuscripts of Homer that are uh, collected and they have the grammarian's kind of marginal notes in here. And they'll note when a verbless transition is happening to find out who is speaking. So, for example, is Homer speaking here or is this another character, right? Um, so you have, a, actually, this is actually ends up becoming codified in a lot of this ancient literature. Obviously, we, we don't get this with the Bible because we don't have that, that same sort of convention. I wish we did. Um, hopefully I'm helping out with that. Um, <laughs> what happens when this kind of gets codified is what uh, someone like, uh, Porphyry calls the solution to who is speaking in a given text or in a given sentence or in a given paragraph 
the solution is from the character. So he says, whenever you find a contradiction, so this is Porphyry, whenever you find a contradiction, or I would kind of amend this and say like a rough patch in the logic of a text or sense kind of a different voice, he's going to call this diaphonia, D-I-A-P-H-O-N-I-A, diaphonia. What you need to do is discern in the solution of a character what's consistent with that character. And that's how you solve the problem of diaphonia. Okay. So when you can when you kind of encounter this kind of, I don't know who's speaking here. This seems kind of weird. Who who's actually talking? You need to go with the criteria, as I was talking about, of appropriateness. <laughs> this is another way of saying this. What is appropriate to a specific character in this text? Right? So whose character does X fit? The author's own voice? The author's own commitments? Or is there some other character involved here? Okay. So another way that we can determine what voice is actually going on here is called a capping formula. Capping formula. C-A-P-P-I-N-G. Capping formula. So someone can start off a speech without verbs of saying. So I say this, you say this. But then at the end of the speech, there will be a capping formula. Remember what I said? about the apostrophe in Romans 2.1. This is important. It was an apostrophe. An apostrophe was used commonly as a capping formula to indicate the end of a speech in Greek. Okay? So the voice of the speaker is often realized retrospectively. You get kind of drawn in by a speech, and then bam, there's a hook. Oh, actually, now I see who this persona is <laughs> that was talking before, right? So what I really want to stress here, however weird it is to, to us who just read text kind of straight through and expect the same author to be talking, is that the way of communicating here where you don't have obvious verbs of saying to indicate kind of a dialogue is ubiquitous. I really want to stress that. Th this is all over the place in the ancient world, okay? This is just what curriculum <laughs> uh, stipulates all the way through. This is what we have in our sources from the ancient world. So Paul isn't anomalous in doing this. This is actually what you would expect from an ancient author who is presenting an epistle, who is presenting a speech to somebody, okay? We would expect this. So finally, let me wrap this up, and then we can get to some questions if you have some about this, or we can move on to some other questions as well. Really what I want to say, when we think about which speech or which person speaking or whatever is appropriate to who, we realize that 2.1, Romans 2.1, if we go back to that, is characterizing the speaker as a judger who is judging people for doing specific things. And he leaves himself out of the orbit of indictment of that judging. What we realize there is that the one speaking in Romans 1.18-32, whose speech is introduced by a gar, which can be used as introducing a speech, but we need more, is a dead ringer for the character 
that's talked about in Romans 2 1. The person speaking in Romans 1 18 to 32 is the judger, is the one who's just judging someone for uh, speaking in this sort of or doing these sorts of things, right? Um, this person is doing that. So the one speaking there in Romans 1 18 to 32 is Paul's interlocutor, not Paul himself. Paul comes back in 2 1 with the apostrophe and capping formula. So that tells us all the more we don't have to rely on the gar to introduce things. That's important. That can show a kind of transition into a speech. But once you get the capping formula on that, it's like, oh, gosh, th this is what's going on here. This is somebody else, right? So the combination of the ancient sources that really stretch back before Paul during his time and after him, the verbless introduction in 118 in concert with the capping formula in 2-1. The fact that Paul does something very similar within his own corpus, namely 1 Corinthians, and the fact that texts were performed and read out loud with instructions on how to actually do this, all of this seems to indicate that we have a lot of precedent to go with the alternative reading that Campbell and others propose. And there's so much more evidence here that we we could talk through. And again, this could take hours, but that that's kind of what I would propose for this. That was a mic drop, man. <laughs> <laughs> I had a quick question. Sure, sure. Might yeah. not be quick. I mean, that was that's great. Like to me, very convincing for that opening chapter one. Yeah. When reading, like I think Douglas Campbell has this sort of repunctuated reformatted romans one to three mm -hmm. in in deliverance and you know he's italicizing and i think where i start to lose him a little bit mm -hmm. is where it starts being just like in the same sentence you've got like half sentences that are italicized and like mm -hmm. going back and forth and is that would that also be something that that had similar kind of precedent like once the character had been established people would get okay i'm able to i'm i'm following the rhythm of it kind of or so are you talking about three one and following then uh, i'd have to take a look but yeah i okay. think yeah afterwards late, later in it where he's he is seems to be quoting again or or ascribing again um uh okay so the the italicized portion in deliverance i believe let me i think he's doing something a bit different than saying that he's just that's the teacher kind of coming in are you talking about where he sort of goes through and he gives yeah, this kind of translation of it yes that's right that's okay. the part i think it could be a bit misleading so the italics there like let's say two one and following right the italics there is either paul saying something and kind of using the teacher's material kind of implicitly it's not him quoting somebody else so the the two one through really the rest of three is a kind of reductio of what the teacher is saying. So Doug puts this in italics to show that he's basically to show the the teacher's material that he's trying to kind of reduce to absurdity is involved in what he's saying. It's not him quoting somebody else. Um, yeah. So that's his move there. I don't, I don't quite like that. Um, <laughs> 
And in my book with him, we don't have it quite that way at all. So, but yeah, that's kind of what's going on. It's it's not that he's quoting the teacher constantly throughout this in italics. It's that he's assuming the teacher's material here in the way that he's speaking um, in reducing it to absurdity. So, I mean, it's implicit in reductios in the ancient world, too. It's just not italicized at all. Um, I think he was just trying to make that more clear. And I, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, but. <laughs> that, that, that's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think having established the character so strongly in the first chapter, it really yeah. does invite us to, we have to rethink the rest of that whole passage because right. he's obviously pointing backwards. Constantly. Yeah. Con I mean, that's what he's doing. That's exactly yeah. right. Um so he, he basically what's going on through two and then when he gets into this sort of like really kind of back and forth dialogue in three and following he's really taking up the teacher's presuppositions and being like oh you say this or you you're sort of implying this in your thinking here's why this doesn't work given what you're already committed to um so that that's kind of the hard thing for people to kind of pick up on but uh, that's how rhetorical kind of modes of engagement work as well. I thought with with his reading of it, it's significant that once you do you once you understand the argument of the teacher, yeah, this actually reverses the usual reading. That's exactly right, Paul. That that yep. that, that Paul is is the one who is questioning. That's exactly right. What advantage has the Jew? Yeah, yeah. And of course, our traditional reading is exactly wrong. Yep. So this is the criteria of appropriateness that I was talking about. So when, once you can remove justification theory from this, you can have a better sense of who's actually talking in that kind of dialogue that's going on in three, one, and following. Who's the one committed to retributive justice? It's not Paul. It's the teacher. <laughs> that doesn't fit Paul at all. That fits the teacher. What would you object to in the way that Campbell is reading this? Um, I don't think I have many objections. I think I'm. Pretty... I mean, in three, three, one, three, one. You, you mentioned that mm -hmm. he, you didn't like the way that he, you mentioned you didn't like the way he had done this. Oh, I, I, I don't like the. I don't like the italicized stuff going on through two specifically. I think I get what he's doing, which is to say, this is where Paul is sort of taking up the teacher's presuppositions and his claims. I get that, but that can be misleading because it could indicate for some people. And this is where Jeff's question I think was coming from that Paul is kind of quoting along the way of what the teacher is doing and that's not the, paul is the one who's speaking all the way through he's not this isn't him quoting someone specifically he's actually just reducing what the person was talking about in romans 118 to 32 to absurdity by the time you get to the end of romans so, so i'm fine with this would it be like scare yeah. quotes is that kind of what he's do what Doug kind of yeah and testing? the way that we do it in our book is i actually have we do it in columns so we have mm. paul on the right side of the page and then we'll have the teacher on the left so you can kind of see how it works back and forth 
Um, I think that's an easier way, especially because that's how plays work. And I think that's really what's going on with this. It's kind of like a play. And that's what epistles are kind of doing. Um, so I, I like that way of scripting things a bit better. Um, I do, I, I get what he's doing. I don't know how well it, it kind of landed with people. Um, but I, I agree that throughout two, he is taking up the presuppositions of the teacher and the and kind of drawing out the claims that have been made in Romans 1, 18 to 32 to their logical conclusion all the way through. I agree with that totally. And really, so so much of what you're describing, some of it, or, or a great deal of it, I think, depends upon that you're we're talking about apprehending ideas here. Yeah. In other words, here's an argument, here is a counter-argument. Mm -hmm. I, I think just that simple notion, which is, of course is <clears> obvious <throat> in most places, uh, such, uh, you know, I, I don't think We've always read three that way. It's just that we've read it backward, yeah. <laughs> because we have we, the, the, we didn't get the argument prior to that. Yep, that's right. That's uh, exactly right. And, and so that very simple idea that you're affirming is, oh, this is this is just the way you read a manuscript. Here is the here is an idea, or here is the doctrine or understanding being presented, and if there's something contradictory. You probably better not just try to smooth it over, which is unfortunately, I'll say this too big, Christianity as we have it. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> I do agree with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I find I find this helpful. Uh, I'm still trying to wrestle, wrestle yeah. through all of it, but I find it helpful because um, without something like this, it's a confusing letter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a poll I was thinking back in our Jack Cottrell days, um, that, you know what, Jack in some sense almost had a teacher, but all he had was um, basically that Paul was Paul was arguing for, for something that he was going to later uh, destroy. In other words, he was going to counter... Uh, trying to build us up, thinking you could do something right uh, with grace or whatever. Of course, he was working through a justification theory, and and eventually it all, you know, you know, for me it all came crashing down. But anyhow, Ro was, uh, Romans one to three makes no sense whatsoever, apart from recognizing this dialectic. Yep. Now the rest of the letter we can kind of pick and choose. You know, but of course, once we've already bought into justification theory, well, then that's going to prejudice us in in our reading of everything that's else. Right. Then, rather than rather than trying to sort out one to three, we're going to, and that's kind of what's happened. Oh, we've just kind of tried to squeeze everything else into the doctrine that yeah. we formulated yeah. through that fusion of false teaching. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is false teaching, and Paul's gospel. Yep, you, that's a wonderful point, and I think part of this has to do with too the way that some people kind of read Paul canonically. And I'm all for reading canonically, right? But if you're reading strictly canonically, where do you start in Paul? 
Well, you start in Romans 1, right? Yeah. <laughs> what a tragedy. <laughs> You're going to start in Romans 1. And what's going to happen there? You're going to read it through as Paul's own endorsement of his gospel up front. And what's going to happen there? You're going to think this is going to be the heart of Paul's gospel. He's delivering to you this gospel up front. And then what do you do with the rest of the stuff in Romans and the rest of Paul's corpus? As you were saying, what's going to happen is the commitments about God, the commitments about how humans are in relation to God, what knowledge of God is like, right? What um, atonement is like. <laughs> All of these things are going to control what happens after that, right? It's going to control it by necessity because you've already decided that this is what Paul is saying to you and endorsing himself, right? So if that's his... If th these are Paul's fundamental commitments, that God is self-evidently known by observing the cosmos or by looking inward in your conscience, if the atonement is simply the death of Christ on the cross by way of essentially penal substitution, right? <laughs> if this is really the heart of the gospel, that has to control everything else. I mean, it's a foundation, right? If you lay a foundation, if you're making a bunch of claims about God, a bunch of fundamental claims about God and how God relates to you, you can't undermine that foundation. You can't. Otherwise, the entire gospel is going to fall down. What's going to happen is that stuff is going to control everything else that follows. And maybe That's we're, just happen. Just, we're just naturally given to... I don't know if this is correct, but it seems correct. In other words, the very thing that Paul's gospel is written against in this understanding, yeah. and actually from many other places, as I read Romans, I think mm. it's it's written over and against the view of God, the view of retributive justice. Yeah. The, in other words, actually Paul is dispossessing people, or that's the goal of his gospel. But if we don't get the goal, and we can't, in, in as we've read it for the last 500 years, yeah, I can't is too strong because we do. I mean, people, people, but boy, you've got to certainly work against the grain yes. uh, of, of the way that this has been read. Yes. And unfortunately, the dominant reading of Paul, not just in the church, but in the academy is justification theory it just is it's everywhere it could be modified in certain ways you might try to nip and tuck certain parts of it but this is really the state of things <laughs> in reading paul and it has been for a long time and it's damaging um it is yeah but but your point and the point tonight is yes but prior to the reformation yeah. Or am I overstating it? Prior to the Reformation, we cannot find this reading of Paul. That's right. I, I, I think that's right. Because the Reformation doesn't just spring out of nowhere, I do think there's probably some, like I was saying at the beginning, some antecedents before that, just like anything else in Reformation theology. <laughs> it's not just 
a novum, right? But yeah, I, I, I if you go back through Christian history, no one's reading Paul like this. It's just not happening. They're seeing something different. Even if they're not seeing, I mean, a Socratic rereading or a speech and character thing, fine. That's fine. But they're not reading it like justification theories because <laughs> they, they don't have that um, in their theological presuppositions at all, at uh, early on, especially. Um, but yeah, I, th I, I don't think you're overstating things. I think that's, that's, that's right, Paul. Yeah. Have there been um, studies of like the historical theology of, of justification as a, as a like history of ideas sort of work? Do you know? Uh, mostly from fairly conservative evangelicals, for sure. Oh, so like in a way that's trying to sort of like, <laughs> yeah. in a way that's sort of right. trying to kind of fold them into th the theory. And you can okay. pick and choose from any one of the church fathers and be like, aha, there's justification. Th th there's penal substitution. It's right there. I can see it. Um, so you can try and fold in this stuff. And that's what most of that kind of project has been doing but no I, I i i'm not aware of i mean this is a different kind of project but alaria romelli's work on the patristics she sees how the patristics are really latching on to first corinthians 15 as kind of the heart of paul and that's going to change the way they read paul because it's really all resurrectional it's liberative it's loving it's universal <laughs> so they're they're kind of beginning there. That kind of work can give you insight into how to make sense of the justification material. But they're yeah, they're doing something very different. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.